0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, get with me to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, There are row Bibles there too, if you did not bring it with you. Matthew chapter 13. So, I wouldn't normally do this because, I don't know, it's like cheesy and the hip thing to do, and I just don't like doing those things. Um... But someone asked if I would do like a, like a selfie thing, right? So we can like, all right. Like I said, those of you who know me know like this is totally uncomfortable for me. So yeah, I don't know, smile, look good. I don't know, what are, you, what are you supposed to even do? Okay, there we go. Ha, now how did you all see my face from that? Like that's amazing. It looks like Jesus is coming from the lights. See it right there? All right. I don't know who I'm going to focus... Someone's face is going to get, like, really focused on. All right. There we go. Here we go. Did that flash? We don't need that. Hang on. Okay. Somehow that's better. All right. One. All right, my face is supposed to be in there, isn't it? Okay. One. Two, three, but I can't say it. Smile. Smile. (laughs) All right. I'm trying. All right. There we go. Okay. All right. Matthew chapter 13. I'm not including that in my timer, for the record. I'm restarting my timer. So. (laughs) There we go. All right. Uh, seriously, what joy it is to be here this morning. I've been thinking about this passage this past week from Psalm 133. First three verses, well, the only three verses. It says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, <laughs> on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What a blessing it's been to watch um, God merge our two churches together, really over the course of multiple years now, and particularly over the course of this past year, with Renovation Church started in, uh, 10 years ago in Refuge City, is it 7, 8, something right around there, is it John 7, there we go, 7 years ago. And coming together to form one body, refuge, church, um, to see God take two people. And, and, and you need to think of it this way, like to begin merging them together, right? Like that's not done just because we're worshiping together in the same place now on Sunday mornings. In many ways, we're just at the beginning of that, and that's going to be a journey. Uh, and it's, it is probably going to even involve pain and joy in the process. So let's just keep those things in mind as we move forward. But to see God begin doing something that is going to happen on an infinitely bigger scale someday. right? As we look forward to every tribe and every tongue, every nation worshiping our Lord and our Savior before His throne someday. But to see him mend two people together, two bodies together, to bring hands and feet, to bring facets of God's glory to complement each other and bless each other. So I'm excited to see what God has in store for Refuge Church in this next season of our lives. I said this to Renovation last week, and I want to say it again this week, that the first ten years have not been about us. They've not been about us. I'm sure we have struggled in moments with making church and life about us, but it's not been about us. And we've been on this war for it to not be about us. And this is still not about us, even us together. This is about Christ, about His glory, about His exaltation, and about our enjoying and spending eternity with Him. That's what it's about. So I'm excited to see what God has in store for us in this next season of our lives. Each year, both churches in their own fashion have taken a short season in the fall to discuss the Bible's vision for us as a church. And I say it that way specifically because what does the word have to say about what the church is to be about. And and it's quite perfect timing that we start this Sunday and this series and us together and think about such things as, according to the Scriptures, what are we to love as a church? What are we to affirm and deny? What should we value? What, What are we following and chasing hard after? What kind of church do we want to be? What's the direction that we are heading? And really, in many ways, it's a chance to set the roadmap, to set the the direction, you know, and to the GPS of where are we headed and what are we trying to accomplish. And we also have to recognize, though, as we come into a conversation like this, that that we all come from different places and different backgrounds and different experiences, and some good and some bad. For example. Some of us come from a church filled with rules and legalism and earning your way to God. Some of us come from church backgrounds that are ruled by emotionalism. Or a church where maybe just kind of anything went. You know, you kind of do your thing, I'll do my thing. We just kind of stay out of each other's hairs and we're good. Or maybe you didn't go to church at all. Or at least maybe you didn 't go to a, a religious organization that would affirm Christ or Christ as the redeemer, or maybe you wanted to go, but no one would take you or or maybe you were adamantly opposed to anything that even resembles what you would call religion or maybe organized religion. Some of us have mixed feeling we all have there 's a mixture of feelings in this place when it comes to what we think about or what comes inside wells up inside us when we think about the church or we think about the past church experiences some of us have come from a life filled of good church experiences where we were joyful and we think of the church as being a grace to our lives for however many years you've been apart maybe for 20 30 years or maybe just one or two or maybe you have hurts and wounds from others in the church we all come into this conversation with baggage with different perspectives with different struggles with different realities that we have faced and, and we do that we come into to any conversation with those kind of presuppositions and, and those uh, expectations and experiences but particularly this conversation particularly this one seems to be A hot one. But what we want to do, what I want to encourage you to do with as much as possible, and I know this is hard, but in many ways, this is what we try to do every week is set some of those things aside and begin with what does the scriptures teach us about this topic? About this verse or about this issue that we're talking about? What do the scriptures teach? And then let the scriptures sift. Our thinking and our understanding and how we understand our experiences in the past and how we should think about going forward. Not to ignore those things. We don't want to do that. But to actually let the Scriptures be our norm and help us define the issue at hand and help us to even understand what has happened in the past and where we should be going in the future. It's not... What do my experiences teach me, although there is value there? It's not, what do my emotions teach me, although there is value there? Or what does, has my family taught me? There's value there. But instead, what does God's Word tell us, particularly in this case, about the church? Now you might ask the question, why Christ local? Why Why Christ local? Why not, I'm just a Christian, I read my Bible, isn't that enough? We will discuss more of that as we go. But for now, think of it this way. Christ came in the flesh, was incarnational on this earth. He represented the Godhead ultimately and the community and all that that represents. But He came locally to be with His people and to redeem them. To be this place of refuge and this place of redemption for them. The local church, in many ways, is like this incarnational expression of Christ's body of all time It's this local expression Each true church in its local expression Is a taste, a touch Of the whole body of Christ And ultimately of Christ himself So that's why Christ's local That's why not just Christ universal Even though that's important too But why Christ's local Because this is the model that our Savior has set for us so I hope a couple of things happen for you in this series. I hope some of you experience a measure of healing. When it comes to past hurts and wounds. And, or maybe wrong perspectives or misguided perspectives. That you would experience a measure of healing. I pray that for some of you that your affections for the church would be stoked in a way that you've never experienced before. That you would fall in love with the body of Christ more than you have been even to this day. Or maybe it would renew them. Maybe there was once a day when you are like, oh, "Man, I just want to love the body of Christ." Maybe in the series that would be renewed. And then I also hope to set this new church together, and 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 the others as John and Pastor Rusty, Pastor John and Pastor Rusty preach as a part of the series too. We hope to set this new church together on a biblical and right trajectory. So with that said, I want to remind us again of our vision. We desire to be a people who treasure Christ, love his church, and give witness to his gospel before the world. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take us to uh, our primary passage, at least for this morning, a passage that I hope will help us define this desire for us as a church. A very simple but incredibly profound passage. I've read over this passage many times, but getting to dive into this passage for, for this past week has been incredible. This is such a gem of a passage. I want us to read Matthew 13, just verse 44. We will be here the whole time. He says this, this is Jesus speaking says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me pray for us. Father. As we study this passage. Father, I pray that we would be just like, just like this man, someone who has found found a treasure whose joy has been over whose joy has been stoked and has overtaken him so much so that he goes and sells everything that he might have this treasure may this be true of us even more so today and more so tomorrow as we walk this journey towards Heaven uh, for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to zoom in really on the first phrase of our vision statement and, and, and help us understand how that fits, how this verse and those those first that first phrase really fits together. That phrase where it says, We desire to be a people who treasure Christ. Back to this passage, Jesus starts talking about this idea of kingdoms and treasure, and this is certainly not a foreign concept when it comes to the scriptures. Kingdom and treasure is all over the place, and when you think about kingdoms and treasure, kingdoms and treasure—that's much of what life is about. It's a—it's about searching for kingdoms and finding treasure. You may not be looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but we're all looking for treasure. If you think about literature, the Lord of the Rings, right, is all about Lord Sauron's finding the ring in order to establish his kingdom in Middle-earth. If you are cool like me and have read the Wingfeather Saga, which I don't think is probably very many of you, but you should, should read it to your kids. It's awesome. Nag the Nameless is after the three jewels of an era so that he can rule over all earth. I think about the Lion King and Scar and his lust for power in the pride lands. Now we name our kingdom and what it looks like. Each of us have our own kingdom and our own treasure that we are looking for and that we are after. And it may not be a pot of gold. But we're after it. Places we build kingdoms thinking we might find treasures. Things like our careers. Our children. Maybe it's our religiosity and traditions, or social movements and activism, or comfort, control, power, affirmation, many things where we, that are not necessarily bad things, but places we try to find this kind of treasure that this man finds in Matthew chapter 13. You know, it's this search. But unlike the movies and unlike literature, we always come up empty. Or if we find some kind of treasure, it is often and ultimately always not enough. These kind of treasures are easy to see. They're easy to name. But the kingdom of heaven is not obviously glorious to the world. The kingdom of heaven is not obviously glorious to the world. It's not plain for all to see like these other treasures that you and I are so tempted to search for, to go after. Instead, it's it's hidden in a field or just, like Jesus will say it's like fine pearls in the next in the verses following this one in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven Cannot be seen by just anyone. So here I think it's important for us. If we kind of stop for just a second. Ask this question. What is the kingdom? So if we're going to think through. This kingdom. This treasure hunt. What is the kingdom? There's this thing. This passage is talking about. There's this thing that's like a treasure. This kingdom. That's like a treasure. That's greater than all other treasure. And Jesus, again, He calls this a kingdom. The kingdom is like this treasure. But what could be a treasure greater than all other treasure? As I think about the kingdom, the kingdom is one of the greatest unifying themes in all of Scripture. If you search the Scriptures, you see the idea of the kingdom all over the place. From Genesis to Revelation... In many ways, the kingdom can be summarized as kind of this phrase, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. It's the theme of the kingdom. You see this in this pattern of the kingdom established in the garden with Adam and Eve, God's people in God's place under God's rule and His subsequent incredible blessing. And then they're dismissed from the garden, right? Then the, the, the kingdom is perished, if you will. They, they are removed from the garden because they don't want to be God's people. and They don't want to be under God's rule. And then you see, and I'm skipping over a bunch of kingdom aspects or kingdom uh, examples here. But then you get to Abraham and you have this promise of this future kingdom that will come. These people that he will make a nation out of. He's basically saying, "I'm going to make a people for myself that will be my people that will live in my place, and they will be under my rule and subsequent blessing." Oh, Abraham. And you have like the Davidic kingdom, and so it moves on forward to this Christ who comes and this kingdom that he speaks about, and then this post cross time that you and I are in. Where this present kingdom that we rest in, or that we live life in. And then there's this post Christ return kingdom when when He comes and establishes His kingdom and it'll be perfect for all of eternity. And for now, again, we live in this present kingdom. So this thing, this thing, God's people, God's place, His rule, under His rule and subsequent blessing, is like this treasure far greater than any other treasure. Now I want to do just another kind of brief survey of Jesus and Himself and what He has to say about this kingdom. There are multiple passages, but just to pick a few, the one we just read, Matthew 13, verse 44, then you go to Mark 1, verse 15, it says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 8, 1, Jesus' ministry is one of proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And then later in the New Testament, Colossians two, verse fourteen through fifteen. Again, go read these verses later. Ultimately, Jesus will purchase the kingdom; he will pay the price for the kingdom. And then look at this passage in verse Luke chapter seventeen, verse twenty-one. Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Again, remember this, not obviously glorious to the world. Jesus is affirming that thought here. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now pause right there. He, 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 present with the Pharisees, says to them, Look, basically, basically, it's going to be right before your eyes, but you're not going to be able to see it. Like, you're not going to have eyes to see it. He says, For it is in your midst. What's he saying? It's me. He's saying, The kingdom is me. Jesus, I'm the kingdom. And I'm in front of you. And this is not obvious to the world, this is not obvious to you. I'm the kingdom, I'm here. I'm among you. I'm in your midst. You Pharisees say you're looking for this kingdom, but it's not coming in ways that you can observe. He means it's not coming in ways you're expecting it to come. It's not coming as a Christian Caesar. It's not coming, or a Jewish Caesar. It's not coming to secure your agenda or your plans to be this ruling nation at this point. Instead, the kingdom is already in your midst. I don't think Jesus is speaking of some mystical thing at this point. I think He's speaking again of Himself. He's saying, I am God's perfect people. Where I go, the kingdom of God goes. Where I go, I live under His rule and all of His blessings. Where I am, the kingdom is. This glorious place, God's perfect kingdom, it's me. It's me and I'm in your midst. But I get it. But it's not obvious to you. It's not clear. You need help to see it. Again, this kingdom is not... I, I want to dispel a couple thoughts here. It's not some ideal. Although it is ideal. It's not just some theoretical concept. It's not just religious activity. This kingdom, again, that is greater, that, that is like a treasure, that's greater than any other treasure. Is not just some state of the mind or some emotional experience or some theological concept. The kingdom is a person. This kingdom that's like a treasure that's greater than any other treasure is a person. And where this person is There is this kingdom. And the fruit of the benefits of this kingdom flow from this person. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. Jesus is saying, I am this treasure. I am this pearl, he will say in the verse that's following in Matthew 13. I am the treasure that is hidden among the world. That is not obviously glorious I'm hidden among the world where brokenness conceals me, where idolatry overlooks me, where pain distracts from me. I am this great treasure that is worth selling everything in order to have. You see, the man in this passage recognized the beauty and the glory of this treasure. When he discovered the treasure, note the response. You say, oh yeah, well, yeah. He sells everything. That's true, he does. But right before that, what's it say? So Come on, come on, what's it say? No, uh, yeah, okay, right, right before, he sells everything. What's it say? Enjoy. Enjoy. In joy he goes and sells everything. He discovered something in this field. And it's worth was so great. That spontaneously he is consumed with joy. Such crazy joy that he would sell everything. So that he might taste it more. That he might have this Treasure more. You see, something in his heart recognized the value of what he had found. Do you hear that? Something in his heart, something in his soul had recognized the value of what he had found. So we too, as a church, like this man desire to be a people who see Christ as the treasure that He is. And we desire to be a people whose lives reflect Christ as the treasure that He is. We're going to talk and flesh this out in the next few minutes. But we desire to be a people whose lives reflect Christ as the treasure that He is. To know Him, to really know Him, mind, heart, hand, that our lives would reflect this reality. Now you need to notice two things that happen in this passage. One is this, He mentally grasped or mentally understood that there was this thing worth everything. He understood that, He understood the value of what He had found. He comprehended to some measure the reality of what was in that field. This gem that was hidden in this field. So much so that he deemed it worth more than everything else that he had combined. All right, get the picture? So he understands something mentally, the, the value of this. The second thing is that his, effect, his affections were stoked. His affections were guided. His affections were... <clears throat> were brought up that welled up inside he loved this thing that he had found his heart was overwhelmed with gladness in what he had found and he rejoiced in his finding and again with such joy that he sells everything nothing else to him is worth the price of what he had found in this field he gives up everything he lets it all go Matter of fact, the idea of like this hiding and like it shows like the immediacy of the reality of his uh, perception of what he had found. Ah, oh, i got to cover this up so I can go, go sell everything so I can come back and I can have it. He gives up everything. He saw the treasure and it moved his affections. More on that in the next point. But for now, he recognized the worth. He recognized, he understood the worth. He believed in the worth, the value. It was worth more to him than anything else. And I want you to think about what you give yourself to the most. Think with me for a second about what you give yourself to the most. I'm trying to get at this question of what do you value most? What do you spend most of the time doing? What do you spend most of the time thinking about? What do you spend most of the time trying to grab a hold of? Or what do you spend most of the time reading about? Or scheming to obtain? What do you spend majority of your time upset about and discontent with? Whatever it is, this is what you value most in your life life this is your treasure in a field that you are daily selling everything to get this is what you're selling your finances to your time to and ultimately your soul to but Jesus says I'm worth more Than all of it. I'm the treasure worth getting rid of all of it. In order to have. I'm worth selling everything to get. A bit more on this treasure. This treasure is God in the flesh. It's the gracious, merciful, holy, transcendent, perfect, just, kind God. And creator of the cosmos. That's what the man had found in the, just scratches the surface of what the man had found in this field. Now come in the flesh, God come in the flesh to rescue His people, to live as God's people in God's place under His rule and authority, then to die for us rebels who didn't want any part of that, and to bring us under His wings of redemption, to be these people in God's place under His rule and authority, to be a part of this kingdom as we're mended together with Christ through the cross and through repentance and faith. This treasure in John 4 describes himself as, as a well. Think about the, the woman at the well. He describes himself as this well that, runs, that never runs dry. And once one tastes of this well or takes a taste and drinks of this well, that he will thirst no more for all of eternity. This is the treasure that the man had found in the field. It's of indescribable value. It's worth more than that promotion at work. It's worth more than being liked by the people around you. It's worth more than having a successful business. It's worth more than the busy schedule you pat yourself on the back with. The treasure in the field is God in the flesh. Listen, it's not an uncommon thing for Christ to speak of selling everything in order to have this treasure. If you remember in Matthew 19, this will be later in his ministry, in verse 20-22, through he says this, The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. What's he saying? Go sell everything and give it to the poor. And you will have... Treasure in heaven, right? What's he thinking? Uh, You can have me and come follow me. Sell everything, give it all to the poor, come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away, what? Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you see the contrast of the two people here? One finds the treasure, says, there is nothing I have that's worth this treasure. And this guy has great possessions that he says is worth more than this treasure that I have, that I could have. In Christ. Listen, it wasn't and isn't that you can't have stuff and follow Jesus. That's not the point of either of these passages. It's that Jesus understood that this man in Matthew 19, the same in 14 uh, 13, was that this man's stuff in 19 was more valuable to him than Christ. The greatest treasure. So Jesus said, your particular walk of repentance and faith looks like selling it all and giving it to the poor. Namely, when you believe that I am the greatest treasure, you will be able to part from your treasure. You can, put it another way, you can part from the things that you've earned with your own hands. And embrace this free treasure of mine. So this man in this field saw Christ as so valuable that he wanted to arrange his entire life around communing with this treasure. Again, if we're thinking about what is it like to live a life that reflects an understanding of the worth of the treasure, it would be a life that looks like arranging our lives around communing with this treasure. Don't think of it as just selling his stuff. He wanted instead, like the picture is bigger than that. He wanted to build his life around this treasure. He wanted to obtain the treasure. Get rid of everything. I'm going to go buy this field so that I can have this treasure. He's arra- he, let's put it in some practical terms. He's arranging his schedule to spend time with this treasure. He's arranging his finances so he could be with this treasure. This treasure was going to be his life. So he wanted it so bad. So let me ask this question of application: What are you not willing to give up in order to have this treasure? Is it one more client at work? Is it that big promotion, that next degree, getting one more lesson done with your child, getting the house just a little more clean? Is it one more lap at the gym, one more session with your hobby? What is it? What is it? Does your life look like a person who understands Christ to be the treasure that He is? Do you spend dedicated time in the Word because you know you can keep counting the treasure in your hands that He is with each turn of the page? Do you spend dedicated time in prayer and communion and walking because you know this treasure cares to hear your voice? Do you spend dedicated time with this church because you know these people will help you see Christ as the treasure He is? Listen, the things that we do as a church are aimed and going to do as a church, continue to do as a church are all aimed at this goal. Have always been. Sermons. Groups of one-on-two discipleship. And one-on-three doxa, DNA. Do you Are you committed to those things? Because you want to know this treasure. Refuge communities and what we've called house galleons at Renovation Church. Small groups basically. Are, Are those an absolute priority because you want to experience this treasure together with other people who want to have and know and and trust and enjoy this treasure? Listen, here's the reality. Some of you have got to go sell some things so you can know this treasure better. What do you need to go sell? It's probably lots of things. It could be material. It's probably immaterial. We desire to be a people whose lives reflect Christ as the treasure that He is. People who would be willing to sell and are daily selling everything to have that treasure. But we also desire to be a people overflowing with joy at the thought of Christ, our greatest treasure. It is true that our actions will reflect Christ as the treasure that He is. Those who are truly His people, their actions, their lives will reflect Christ as this treasure. Meaning our life will look like one massive selling of everything in order to have this treasure. But I think we have to ask the question, how? Like, how does that happen? I, like, I really like my stuff, right? I really like my stuff. Well, first of all, let's call it junk. That'll help. I I, I mean, junk relative to the treasure, right? Because it could be good stuff. But it's junk compared to the treasure. I really like my stuff. But I want to ask you this question. What had to happen in order for this man to sell everything? I mean, this is absurd, I mean, particu- I, I mean, listen, it's, okay, I'm going to have a garage sale. I'm going to sell a few things. I still got this big stockpile over here, right? Because we're Americans and we got plenty. But, like, Jesus' point here is this extreme response. He sells everything. Now, what happened when he found the treasure? Again, I already alluded to this earlier. You say, well, he sold everything to get the treasure. He had to buy the treasure, right? Oh, but I think, I think you're missing a really important reality. The treasure didn't become his first and foremost because he sold everything. Why did he sell everything? What would lead him to do something so crazy? Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, then in this affectionate response to what he had found, he goes and sells everything. What would lead him to do something so crazy? Joy would. Because he was overcome with joy because the treasure he found became the most valuable thing to him. So, he sold everything because he was filled with joy at the thought of this treasure being his. It's mine. Let me do whatever it takes to get this thing. It was in joy that he acquired the treasure. It was the delight in the treasure that led him to acquire the treasure. Say that again. It was the delight in the treasure that led him to do whatever necessary to acquire the treasure. It was the stuff he sold that bought this treasure. It was his joy that led to the selling of this treasure. But let's ask another question What brought about this joy? Right? So if it was the joy that ultimately leads to like, this selling of everything, this walk of repentance. How did this joy come about? How did this delight in the treasure, this recognition of the treasure, this, this understanding the glory of what he had found. How did that happen? Did he muster up the joy? Did he say, okay... I'm awesome, I'm righteous, because I recognize that this is a good treasure. So what should I go do? I should go check this off, check this off, check this off, right? So that I can have this treasure. I can go earn my way to this treasure. Did he say, let me now have joy, right? That's what he did? The treasure's there. I should have joy. I mean, that's what a lot of us do when we come to church on Sundays. Oh, there's this Jesus, there's this blood, there's this bread... And we sing songs. So let me be joyful. It works, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you're all looking at me like it works. Did he just flip the switch? No. He saw the treasure. He saw the treasure. But remember, this treasure is not obviously glorious to the world. So how did he see the treasure? Because God in His mercy... Opens his eyes to see the treasure. He didn't bring this joy about. And God brought it about. God's glory and the work of the Spirit ignited and awakened the man's soul. To behold the beauty and the glory of the treasure. So much so that he was willing to sell it all. That he might have this treasure the Lord Awaken His eyes to see and behold the treasure. If we are going to be a people who reflect Christ as our treasure, He alone must awaken our hearts to see Him as the treasure He is. Now, I want us to be careful because it's not just joy... So that I can do things. So that I can have Jesus. But what happens is he sees by God's grace the treasure. His heart responds in joy. And I want us to understand that treasuring Christ is not a means to another end. It is in many ways an end itself. Enjoy. He sold every everything, everything so that he could have the treasure. So he could relish in the treasure. So he could enjoy the treasure. So that, again, so he could walk with this treasure. He could be in this treasure. Treasuring Christ is not the means to another end. It's not the way we get to heaven. It's not the way we become a better Christian. Although those things happen. Indeed, as we treasure Christ, we will reflect Him as the treasure He is. But treasuring Him is an end in itself. We don't do it just to get something else. We treasure Him because He's worth it. That's the point of the passage. His actions reflect that He recognizes this worthiness of the treasure He had found. Notice in the passage, he has no control over his affections, but his affections lead to actions. The worship of his heart led to the worship of his hands. He found the treasure. He sees it and sees it for what it is. And what comes is joy. Piper gives some examples, and I'm going to use some examples of my own here. Kind of in the same fashion that he does, John Piper, that is. Uh, so if, so if you're like, see that I have like a couple black eyes, right? Like, short story, really quick, kind of funny, kind of not. Uh, I was trying to change out my work on my garage door, and a, I took off a bracket I shouldn't have that the spring that was connected to the springs, and basically the bracket comes up. With at least 320 pounds of pressure And smacks me straight across the face uh, My face looks a world better Compared to two Fridays ago When I was in the ER uh, I mean, I, literally, I don't want to be hyperbolic here But like, I genuinely could have died Like, people die from these things And you're saying, well Matt, you're foolish you sh-. Maybe I am uh, But that's another point <laughs> for another day I want to give you a couple of examples kind of based on this on this thing as we think about joy when, when I was smacked my face a couple of weeks ago in that moment, what came upon me was fear, like fear. Some of the most fearful moments of my life was from the moment I got hit to the time I got to the mirror to see what all had happened. My face was numb i couldn 't tell what have I done in those moments i 'm going what what 's going to happen to me I, am I going to live i 'm asking these questions those genuinely fearful in those moments I mean blood coming out like I've never seen come out of my body before then fast forward I was sitting a couple just, uh, not even an hour later maybe 30 minutes later sitting at the hospital bed and I see my kids and they see me for the first time really since this happened and in that moment I am overwhelmed with the joy of God's mercy So I was overwhelmed with fear, now I'm overwhelmed with God's mercy and letting me live another day so that I can see my kids and hold my wife. The next night we had had planned to celebrate our wedding anniversary, so Sarah and I walked some of the streets of Tip City after we had eaten dinner and just overwhelmed with joy and gratitude of God's grace on me to enjoy another day with my wife. I said, I didn't choose those emotions in those moments. I didn't choose those affections. They happen spontaneously in response to those situations. This is what happens in this treasure find. He finds this treasure, and God, by His grace, helps him see what He has found. And what happens is joy. You see, God is the smack in the face. God is the kids next to the hospital bed. God is the walk next to my bride. What I mean by that is, He is the treasure that when we have eyes to see by His mercy, that what happens is this joy that then reflects the worth and the value of what we have just seen and understood and know. It's the reaction. It's not something we can control, but when the Spirit gives us eyes to see, the affections come. And those affections say something about what the eyes are beholding. You see, when we enjoy God supremely, We are saying, our affections are saying, that He is the greatest treasure. He's worth everything. He's worth selling it all. And Piper said this, worship is a way of reflecting back to God the radiance of His worth. That's what happens here. God gives this man this eyes to see that results in this joy and what happens is Jesus says this joy is this reflection of the radiance of the worth of the treasure. And just so we're clear that you understand that that's what's happening, that fruits in him selling everything so that he can have it. Joy in him is our end. That's why he sells everything he has. The joy that's come upon him by finding the treasure. He wants more. He doesn't want it to stop. He he wants this to be his life. This joy became an end in itself. Understand everything else he thought he needed. He is saying in this moment, I don't need it anymore. I have this treasure. I'm good to go. I'm done. It's enough for me. You know, his act of selling everything says, I am hopeless without this treasure. I don't need these things. I'm desperate to have this treasure. I cannot live without God. I cannot live without this treasure. You see, God's kingdom is this place where His people live under His rule and blessing. And Jesus saw the beauty of the treasure, the kingdom, and His Father. And just like the man in the parable, we come to this kingdom empty-handed. We have nothing to give. You and I cannot make this joy happen in us that would then lead to the fruit of selling everything so that we could have this treasure. We are hopeless without this treasure. We are desperate to have God. And we need God to awaken this desire in us, these affections for this treasure. We need God to help us see the excellencies of Christ and 2 Corinthians four six says this, For God who said, Let line, light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We cannot make this happen. God has to do this. God has to awaken, has to shine this, this light into our hearts. To give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This treasure. We cannot make this happen, but what you and I can do while we wait is place ourselves among streams of God's grace as, as one author calls it. That God often uses to awaken this treasure within us. Streams of His grace. We talk about often His The grace of the scriptures. The scriptures where the beauty of this treasure is on display on every page. Or the next grace, communing with God in prayer. The fact that we have His ear. We have this treasure's ear. Where is listening to us and we can talk to and commune with. And the third grace being giving yourself to the body of Christ, to Christ local, where you can experience the excellencies of Christ. The picture is this, be in the places that help paint the picture of the treasure. The treasure, the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ, a person. Be amongst a people like this that will help you see the glory and the beauty of the treasure. Be in the Scriptures where it will help you see the glory of the beauty of the treasure. Be in prayer where you can hear and talk to the One who has painted the picture. The One who has sent the treasure. Let me remind you of the place where this treasure is most evidently beautiful. Where this treasure is most brilliant in its display. You and I, at the core of our beings, ran from God, saying that we are good on our own. We have worshipped anything and everything other than God, gathering up treasures and living our lives for these treasures. We ascribe glory to all these things, to the neglect of supreme ascribing of glory to Him. We rob Him in many ways. We, Ephesians 2 talks about how we were His enemies. And then one day, God sends His greatest treasure. Right? His son, Jesus. He lives this perfect life under God's rule, trusting and worshiping the Father in everything he said, did, and thought. And then at the end of his life, he went to a cross. And God placed the sin of his people on Jesus and gave him the punishment that his people deserved. But then, three days later, God raised Him from the dead, saying, death is defeated. And the payment was accepted. And then to finish it all, Jesus ascends to heaven, is welcomed into God's throne room, where He now rules from God's right hand. And Jesus established the perfect kingdom with His blood. He calls us to Repent. Of all this treasure gathering. And by faith believe. That He is the greatest treasure. And this treasure is on display in this incredible kindness. That we see from our God. What mercy. That He would love us so much. That He would give up His treasure for a moment. So that we might have His treasure Forever. Let me encourage you with this. Meditate on this until the Lord melts that cold heart and awakens a fire of joy for the treasure that Christ is. We desire to be a people who treasure Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that You would do this amongst these people, amongst us, even in my own heart, Father, that that even now or this evening and tonight that You would continue to help me see the treasure that Your Son is, That that my affections and the actions that follow would reflect the radiance of Your glory and worth that I would not just give lip service, that we would not just give lip service or just shallow hand service to, to You and to the glory. But Father, we would be a people who say You are worth more than everything I have. I would give it all if You ask me to. Father, lead us Lead us to be that kind of people. Father, by your grace, do so. For your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name I ask this and pray this. Amen.